You're listening to a sermon podcast from Lawson Heights Alliance Church. May God bless you as you listen. Well, today we tackle chapters 40 to 44 and the new temple. Next week we'll look at chapters 45 to 48, and that'll be the end. And uh, it'll be about a new creation. Chapters 38 to 48 are really quite... There's a lot of end times topics in there, isn't there? And here's the thing you need to know about me and the end times. I don't give a rip about timelines and systems. In fact, if you're dogmatic about any view, I'll just take the other one just to mess with you a little bit. That's just me. Remember, I believe that God has made biblical prophecy deliberately cryptic for a reason. So that you and I will hold our views loosely and trust him. Now, some people have a tough time with that, and that's okay. See, I believe that all of the systems have good points, strong biblical points. All of them have some bad points, weak, even unbiblical points. And that's true of the topics that we've covered so far in the identity and location of Gog and Magog. So you can be a dispensational, pre-trib, rapture, pre-millennial person. Say that in five times. And I will still love you. Or you can be an all-millennialist or a post-millennialist, and I will still love you. Because I haven't decided which I'm yet. Because I don't like systems very much. We can disagree about a lot of things in those systems and timelines, but here's something that we should all be able to agree on. That it is not important when Jesus is coming, but that he is coming. Amen? Amen? That's what we need to agree on, and let's have fun with the rest. Now, today, we're going to have fun with a topic that is big in end times topics these days. We're going to talk about Ezekiel's temple, and there's end times implications for these, for this. So let's pray before we get into it. Dear Lord Jesus, we're in your word. We come waiting to hear from you. And Lord, there will be a lot of details. There's a lot of history in Ezekiel. A lot of complicated stuff even. But Holy Spirit, help us not to get bogged down by the details. Help us, Lord, to see the point. And help us, Lord, to get past the different polar positions in these topics. And help us, Lord, to see your Bible for what it is. A revelation of the living God. And so, Lord, as your people today, we just humble ourselves before your word and ask that you would teach us by your Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let me remind you where we're at in the story. Remember, the the whole book of Ezekiel is a retelling through multiple visions that Ezekiel has received from the sovereign Lord. However, today, the vision starts off with a time reference. Some others have as well, but this one does too. Ezekiel 40, verse 1, in the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year, on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city. So Ezekiel is 25 years into the exile with his fellow exilic people. And it has been roughly 13 years since the fall of Jerusalem. And surprisingly, that was the last time Ezekiel had received a vision from the Sovereign Lord, at least that we're given an account of. 
Ezekiel 33, verse 21, says this. This was the last notation. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the tenth month, on the fifth day, a man who had escaped from Jerusalem came to me and said, The city has fallen. And then the hand of the Lord came on him and he gave more prophecy. If that's the case, then God has been silent to these exiles for quite a while. So you can't help but wonder if maybe they thought that God had forgotten them. After all, it's been 13 years. The last vision was a hope message. So where's this Lord's hope for them today, 13 years later? What do do you do when God seems silent in your life? Perhaps God hasn't spoken to you for quite some time. And maybe you're getting a little anxious with that. Today's vision would have been especially meaningful to Ezekiel, being that he was a priest by profession. So let's pick it up in verse 2, Ezekiel 40, verses 2 to 4. In visions of God, he took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain on on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze, He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, Son of man, look carefully and listen closely and pay attention to everything that I'm going to show you, for that is why you have been brought here. Underline that. Tell the people of Israel everything you see. So this is a vision. And in this vision, God grabs Ezekiel and he lifts him up and he takes him into the land of Israel, obviously to oversee Jerusalem and a temple. He's at some gates. Now remember, Jerusalem and its temple have been destroyed. So all Ezekiel is expecting to maybe see in this little journey that, he, that the Lord has taken him on is some ruins. And yet he sees something else. He sees some buildings that look like a city. And he sees a man A man that we'll call the bronze man. Sounds pretty cool, doesn't it? A man who looked like bronze and was carrying in his hands some measuring tools to measure what Ezekiel sees. So what's he measuring? Well, we'll read in chapters 40 to 44 that he's measuring a temple that's not there in the physical city of Jerusalem. He's measuring a temple that's not there because this is a vision, right? And then in chapters 45 to 48, the bronze man is measuring out the divisions of the land according to the respective tribes of Israel, and then he measures out a city. We'll get to that next week. Again, this is not a literal brick-and-mortar temple or city in Ezekiel's day, but according to the final verse of Ezekiel, this new future temple will be in a city, and the city will be given the name, you just have to go to chapter 48, very last verse, The Lord is there. Cool name for a city. So when will this be built? Or has it? Well, if you've been following along with us through this series, I've tried to explain that biblical prophecy has this already but not yet aspect to it. That means that it's not always known how far out onto the horizon the prophecy is forecasting until it's fulfilled. Biblical prophecy is kind of cryptic that way. There's usually an immediate or near-immediate unfolding of a prophecy, but then there may be another in the, near, in the near future, distant future, maybe even real distant future, another. So did Israel ever build another temple after the exile? Yep, they did. 
The date at the beginning of this chapter tells us that it was somewhere around 572 B.C. right now. Because Jerusalem and the temple had fallen to Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. And then in 539 B.C., 33 years after this vision, the Medo-Persians defeat the Babylonians and King Cyrus takes Babylon, overtakes it. Then slowly the Persians allow the Jews to all the Jewish exiles to go back from everywhere they are, from Babylon, from Turkey, from Egypt, to return back to the ruined city and to rebuild it. Eventually, though, through Zerubbabel, the temple was rebuilt. Not nearly as grand as Solomon's temple. Ezra the priest establishes some reforms to reconnect the Jews to their covenants. And Nehemiah builds the walls. He goes about rebuilding the walls around the city. But it's not Ezekiel's temple that they build. It doesn't look anything like it. Let's look at verses two, or verse 5 and following here in Ezekiel 40. I saw a wall completely surrounding the temple area. The length of the measuring rod in the man's hand was six long cubits, each of which was a cubit and a handbreadth. He measured the wall. It was one measuring rod thick and one rod high. I wish I could have gone back with a good Milwaukee tape measure for this guy. Hey? Would have helped us. Then he went to the east gate. He climbed its steps and measured the threshold of the gate. It was one rod deep. The alcoves for the guards were one rod long and one rod wide. And projecting walls between the alcoves were five cubits thick. And the threshold of the gate next to the portico facing the temple was one rod deep. Then he measured the portico of the gateway. It was eight cubits deep and its jams were two cubits thick. The portico of the gateway faced the temple. Inside the east gate were three alcoves on each side, and the three had the same measurements, and the faces on the, of the projecting walls on each side had the same measurements. Then he measured the width of the gateway to entrance of the gateway. It was 10 cubits, and its length was 13 cubits. In front of each alcove was a wall one cubit high, and the alcove was six cubits square. Are you getting bored yet? Then he measured the gateway from the top of the rear wall of one alcove to the top of the opposite one. The distance was 25 cubits and one parapet uh, opening the opposite way. Anyway, we'll just finish there. It'll go on. Now, stopping there, there is still a lot more to the description. So far, Ezekiel is just shown the outer wall surrounding the outer court of the temple. You can see it up here on the overhead. He's shown gates and the rooms for preparing sacrifices, the rooms for the priests, and then the gates of the, to the inner court and the portico. And then in chapters 41 to 42, he's shown the temple proper, where he sees the main hall, the inner sanctuary, or also called the holy place, and the most holy place. Again, this is on the overhead, that sort of sidebar there, that's what the uh, pro- temple proper looked like. And the part of Ezekiel's temple, this part of Ezekiel's temple resembled the same structure within the, temp, the tabernacle in Moses' day. Now, if you remember, the tabernacle, also called the tent of meeting, was just that. It was a portable tent that Israel moved with after Egypt throughout the wilderness wanderings until they got into the promised land. But Yahweh had given Moses specific instructions how to build this thing. 
And it was the place where the worship of the Jews happened, along with Moses' instructions from God, till the time of Solomon. Then Solomon builds a permanent brick and mortar temple for Yahweh. And it too has similar design features. And the temple proper had the same design as the tabernacle. Because Yahweh gave Solomon specific instructions on how to build it. And as you know, the temple was destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 BC. So that temple is gone. Now Ezekiel's temple describes a new temple. And the, proper, the temple proper, the main hall, the inner sanctuary, or the holy place, and the most holy place, again, have the same design features, but it's much, much, much bigger. Turn to Ezekiel 41. Verse, we'll, uh, we'll start in verse 1. Then the man brought me to the main house and measured the jams. The width of the jams was six cubits on each side. The entrance was ten cubits wide, and the projecting walls on each side of it were five cubits wide. He also measured the main hall, and it was forty cubits long and twenty cubits wide. Then he went into the inner sanctuary and measured the jams of the entrance. Each was two cubits wide. The entrance was six cubits wide, and the projecting walls on each side of it were seven cubits wide. And he measured the length of the inner sanctuary. It was 20 cubits, and its width was 20 cubits across the end of the main hall. And he said, this is the most holy place. Then he measured the wall of the temple. It was six cubits thick. And each side room around the temple was four cubits wide. The side rooms were on three levels, one above another, 30 on each level. And there were ledges all around the wall of the temple to serve as supports for the side rooms so that the supports were not inserted into the wall of the temple. The side rooms all around the temple were wider at each... Anyway, it goes on. More. Ezekiel continues to watch as the bronze man measures everything. So if this temple was not Zerubbabel's temple after Solomon's temple was destroyed, uh, in 515 B.C., then it must be a more future temple. If we skip forward to the Roman Empire, then the next Jewish temple to be built in Jerusalem is Herod's temple. Again, the main sanctuary, the temple proper, that is, has the same design features as the tabernacle and of Solomon's temple and of Zerubbabel's temple. And it has the main hall, the inner sanctuary or holy place, and the most holy place. But Herod's temple of the Roman Empire, the temple that Jesus visited, was not Ezekiel's temple. Ezekiel's temple was supposed to be much, much, much bigger So what about a more future temple? Well, since Herod's temple was destroyed in 70 AD, we have not seen a new temple in Jerusalem even to this day, right? Now, if you follow any of the end times prognosticators out there, you have probably heard proposed that there is another temple that will be built in Jerusalem somewhere at the end of the age. When depends on when you think the millennium is, the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And all the systems place this new temple at different points in their timeline. But I'm going to propose to you today that this isn't a literal future brick-and-mortar temple building. And there's a few reasons for that. Number one is this. 
There are features, several features of Ezekiel's temple that suggest that what's being described transcends the literalism that most end times folks impose on it. In other words, there are textual details that are not consistent with the rest of the Old Testament's development of God's dwelling place on earth. For instance, with everything that we've read so far from chapter 40 to 42, did you notice that Ezekiel is not asked to construct anything? Nowhere in these chapters is he asked to construct anything. On the contrary, chapters 40, uh, chapter 40, verse 2 to 5, he is told to watch the bronze man as he measures everything, and then all he's supposed to do is report what he sees to his fellow Israelites. He's given a vision of the temple that already exists somewhere. No human being is said to have built it. That's notably different than every other dwelling place that Israel has seen so far. There's an article by Moshe Greenberg entitled The Design and Themes of Israel's Program or Restoration, where he notes that Moses has given specific instructions on how Israel was supposed to build the tabernacle and how to pay for it. Solomon, too, he says, was given specific instructions about how to build these things and how to pay for it. We also see in Ezra chapter 5 and 6 that after the exile, after Solomon's temple was destroyed, when the Persians are allowed to, when the Persians allowed the Jews to return back to Jerusalem, they just started building on the already foundations of of Solomon's temple. And when they were charged or challenged by the authorities, they went and somehow found a scroll in the citadel of Ekbatana in the province of Media uh, that says this. Uh, is uh, Ezra 6, 2-5. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 60 cubits high, 60 cubits wide, with three courses of large stones and one of timbers. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. So the tabernacle in Moses' day, and the next two temples were commissioned works and built to certain architectural specifications by the Jews. As Leslie Allen observes in, observes in his commentary, Ezekiel, the word biblical, biblical commentary, he says, significantly, there is no call to, build, to rebuild the temple, this Ezekiel temple, only to observe the regulations for rites and offerings. The new temple was to be Yahweh's creation, built for rather than by his people, as a model of his own being and of his relationship with them. Now, we call it Ezekiel's temple, but it wasn't Ezekiel's temple because he didn't, he didn't build it, but it, because it's in his book. Ezekiel never builds anything. And, except he played with some blocks, remember, at the first couple chapters? And, when, and what he describes is not a blueprint for anyone to build anything in the future. Second thing that we note about this, to know that it's not a literal brick-and-mortar building. Number two, there are things that you would expect to see in the t- new temple that are not there. Number one, there's no roof. There's no roof ever measured out in this temple. In fact, there's no description or measurement of any height of anything except the altar. There's measurements for length and width, And everything, but no height measurements. So, there is no roof. 
Moshe Greenberg, in his Anchor Yale Bible commentary on Ezekiel, suggests that this might pose a problem with ceremonial cleanliness, something you just wouldn't think about, but, but this commentator did. He said it would, it would have a problem with ceremonial cleanliness. If a bird lands in the most holy place, that would be a problem. Or poops anywhere within the temple, that would be a ceremonially unclean problem. Now, people who are bound to a literal temple at the end of the age like to point out how detailed the measurements are. And so there must be a literal temple. But how literal are we to take this temple if it doesn't have a roof? Michael Heiser, on his podcast, makes the following comments. Think about the logic of that statement. When they say, the more detail something receives, that means we're supposed to take the passage literally. Well, if that's the case, what does that say about the meaning of prophecies that have less detail? Should we take them non-literally then? There are plenty of Old Testament prophecies about Messiah that lack detail. In some cases, they're kind of ambiguous. The fact that something is laid out in detail is not an argument against its symbolic meaning later on. Either within the Old Testament or with how the New Testament repurposes something. By way of illustration, Passover is laid out in great detail in two chapters of the Old Testament. But we all know that it's considered a type, a symbolic thing, that, not that it didn't happen, but it is considered for New Testament purposes a symbolic thing of how Christ was sacrificed on the cross later in the Gospels. And when you read crucifixion accounts in the Gospels, Jesus doesn't act out the instructions of the Passover. Yet, the New Testament writers, and us, get the implication of the symbols, don't we? Ezekiel's temple is a type It is a picture of a future temple designed and built by God himself. Also, there is no temple furnish, there are some temple furnishings missing in this temple. Commentator uh, Moshe Greenberg again notes that many furnishings from Moses' tabernacle and Solomon's temple are missing. Most notably, there's no Ark of the Covenant. There's no guardian cherubs in the most holy place and there's no lamps in the holy place. And the only interior furniture mentioned is a vague altar of wood found in Ezekiel 41 verse 20. Greenberg adds, very strange is the absence of a wall around the inner court to which three massive gates might stand in relation. No equivalent to the lavers or to the bronze sea appears in the outer courts. And it was in all the others, the the other temples. And where were the priests to wash? The notion that water issuing from the temple might serve is unlikely as a thing of cleanliness. For until it leaves the temple, it is too thin a stream for body washing. Why would it be a problem for there not to be water in this place for priests to wash? Well, to find out, we have to go back to Exodus chapter 30. We'll read verses 17 to 21. Remember, keep these things, these pictures in mind. This builds on something for later. Exodus 30, 17 to 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a bronze basin with its bronze stand for washing. Place it between the tent of meeting and the altar and put water in it. Aaron and his sons are to wash their hands and feet with water from it. Whenever they enter the tent of meeting, they shall wash with water so that they do not die. Also, when they approach the altar to minister by presenting food 
a food offering to the Lord. They shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die. This is to be a lasting ordinance for Aaron and his descendants and for generations to come. But there's no bronze basins for washing in this new temple. The bronze basins are gone, but they're necessary for uncontaminating sacred space. See, these absences create problems for the prospect of a literal temple at the end of the age. But here's the real doozy. Number three, why are there sacrifices in the new temple at the end of the age? Why are there sacrifices in the temple at the end of the age? Listen to chapter 43, verses 26 to 27. For seven days, they are to make atonement for the altar and cleanse it. Thus, they will dedicate it. At the end of these days, for the eighth day on, the priests are to present your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar, and then I will accept you, declares the sovereign Lord. This was the Jewish obligation under the old covenant, right? But why would there be the sacrificial system? Why would it come back after Christ has established a new covenant? Listen to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10 verses 8 to 18. It's a lengthier part. First he said, sacrifices and burnt offerings, sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, O God, nor were you pleased with them. Though they were offered in accordance with the law, then he said, for I am, or here I am, I have come to do your will. That is Christ. He set aside the first covenant to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, he says. And I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. That was in Ezekiel, if you remember, way back. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifices for sin are no longer what? Necessary. As one commentator put it, if the sacrificial system is brought back to atone for personal sin at the end of the age, then Hebrews was wrong. The book of Hebrews was wrong. Having sacrifices in the end times temple is hugely problematic, folks. In fact, it would be blasphemous for sacrifices and offerings to be needed in a future millennial temple. Now, some end times teachers who, who, who expect a literal temple propose, propose that these offerings and sacrifices were more like memorial offerings and sacrifices used to teach those in this period of history the need for sacrifices for the sacrifice of Christ at the end of the age. But I like what Michael Heiser says. Commentator Michael Heiser says, since the temple was destroyed 2,000 years ago, Jews have come to Christ just fine without needing to watch a sacrifice to learn what Jesus did. 
Why not just hand them a New Testament and have them read about it? We don't need a sacrificial system at the end of the age. Romans 3, to 25, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of His blood to be received by faith. Some have suggested that these sacrifices are just for Israel. No. Did Jesus not declare on the cross, it is finished? So why would we expect a future millennial temple to have sacrifices? I'm going to propose to you something else, number four. Could it be that this is not a literal brick-and-mortar building, but a temple of another kind? A temple of another kind. Let's skip forward to uh, John chapter 1. It's in the New Testament here. John chapter 1, verse 14. If it's a future, what kind of future is it? Future temple. John 1, 14. And the Word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Where was it that Israel saw the glory of God? In the tabernacle, the temple? Mounts' Greek dictionary says that this phrase, dwelt among us, skieno, means to pitch a tent to encamp, to tabernacle with us. That's tent of meeting or tabernacle language, isn't it? Did he literally pitch a tent? No, his body was not a tent. It was a body of flesh and bone. But you know what parallel John is drawing on here, don't you? John chapter 2, uh, verses 18 to 22. This is the time where Jesus overturns the tables in Herod's temple at Passover. The Jews then responded to Jesus... What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. They replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his what? Body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said, and then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. What does that say about a future temple or tabernacle that the Lord would build? It's a literal temple, but not brick and mortar. It's Jesus who is the temple that tabernacled among us. It's a temple of another kind. He's a temple of another kind. And who doesn't need a roof over his head in worship of God? Jesus. Why? Because he's in full communion with the Father. There are no barriers for him. Not only this, but Jesus also solves the problem of the sacrificial offerings that a literal brick-and-mortar temple uh, at the end of the age make for us. Hebrews 9. Let's go back there. Hebrews 9, verses 11 to 15. I'm hoping that that Hebrews isn't wrong. But... When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are, not, that are now already here. Did you hear that? Now already here. He went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, is not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who were ceremonially unclean sanctified them so that they 
so that they were, uh, so that they are outwardly clean. But how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant. And that those who are called may receive the, eternal, the promised eternal inheritance. Now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. Friends, there will not be a literal brick and mortar temple at the end of the age. No matter your timeline. Because that would nullify the sacrifices and the priestly work that Christ accomplished for us on the cross. Those are already here in Christ. But did Jesus ascend? But didn't Jesus ascend back to the Father? So, what about a temple now? Yes, He did ascend, but He also did something extraordinary for us when He ascended. Turn to Ephesians, chapter two, verse twenty. Uh, sorry, let's do Second Corinthians first. Second Corinthians sixteen six sixteen. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they will be my people. That has always been the hope of the Old Testament tabernacle. Ephesians 2, verse 21 to 22. In him, that is Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Folks, because of Christ, we who are his body, by divine impartation of the Holy Spirit, we have become the temple of God on earth. His dwelling place. You are. We are now the dwelling place of the sovereign Lord. Do I hear an amen to that? So does the book of Revelation jive with this? Sorry, I just saw the Jesus revolution, so I've got some 70s hippie jive in me here. Revelation 3, 11 to 12. This is uh, the, to the church in Philadelphia. Jesus said, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, the Christian who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the in the temple of my God. Literally? Like I'm going to become a stone pillar in the temple of God? No, we all know that that is not brick and mortar pillar. It's a pillar of believers. Can we not agree then that the entire language of the New Testament regarding this new temple is the people of God united in Christ? It's nothing else but that. So why would we think that God would change his mind in the book of Revelation when John sees a vision of the temple? When his whole point was to make us his temple, not a brick-and-mortar temple. From Revelation 3 to Revelation 16, the only temple references are the temple of God in heaven. Did you know that? Chapter 15, for instance, verses 5 and 6, After this I looked and I saw in heaven the temple, that is, the tabernacle of the covenant law. And it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. It isn't until Revelation 21 when the holy city makes its way from heaven to earth. Let me read it. Verses 1 to 4. Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. 
For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city. We'll talk about that next week. The new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. From where? God. Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Now skip ahead to verse 22. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. No brick and mortar temple at the end of the age. Remember that John's temple description comes out of a vision. So we should be very careful not to impose too much literalism on the book of Revelation. Ezekiel's temple also came out of a vision. Vision does not necessarily mean literal. But equally, non-literal does not mean not true. Here's where all of this has led me and perhaps all of us today. Some of you will still believe in a literal temple, probably. There will be a temple at the end of the age, as in Revelation. But it will not be a physical brick-and-mortar temple. We need to be careful not to press the literalism of the Bible's texts to meet our own projected theories when we read it. God has already prepared a temple. It's called Jesus. And by extension, we, the church, his body, are now his temple on earth and will be even more fully come the end of the age. So if a brick-and-mortar temple is built in the future, and I probably would bet my family on that it wouldn't be, but if one happens to come along, a brick-and-mortar temple at the end of the age or somewhere in the future, if it has a sacrificial system associated with it, you better not participate in it because that will not be of God. And that's why you always need to read and listen to end times teachers, even me. We just read about the Bereans last Thursday at our men's Bible study. You have to listen to all of us with your Bibles in hand. So what can we take away from today? Well, I think Ephesians 2 says it well for us. In Christ, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. That's us. In him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. That's us. That's the experience we should be living today. That's the kind of lifestyle that we should be pursuing today. Is it all literal? No, but there are aspects of it that, are, that transcend literalism. And we should figure that out. One day, God is going to wrap up human history. We don't know when. We don't really even know exactly how it will unfold out, even though somebody might think they do. But it will include us, guaranteed, the temple of God. And God is building us into a great dwelling place for his magnificent, glorious name.